The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the fourth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus began to say to all in the synagogue in Nazareth, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Doctor, cure yourself, and you will say, Do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, Truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in that prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. There were also many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But he passed through the midst of them and went on his way. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. I am in my eighth year of campus ministry. I also have a son in his senior year of high school with two others soon to follow. In my time of working with and living with young adults, I have found some of the most immediately paralyzing questions one can ask them are, what do you want to do in life? Or worse, what is your master plan? One can almost immediately see their pupils contract as the deer in headlights instinct sets in, and they are torn between fight and flight. Perhaps the people of Nazareth asked young Jesus similar questions as well, at least by the end of the second chapter of Luke, as Jesus increases in wisdom and years and in divine and human favor. What do you want to do with your life, young Jesus? Do you want to be a carpenter like your dad or a king? like your ancestor David 42 generations ago. Perhaps a wealthy landowner like your ancestor Boaz 45 generations ago. What's your master plan, Jesus? Nazareth wants to know just what sort of fame this young Jesus might bring them. After all, every town wants to boast of its prodigy, does it not? Dayton, Ohio boasts of being the hometown of the Wright brothers. LaRue County, Kentucky brought forth Abraham Lincoln. Iowa City, you might ask. Iowa City. Henry Augustus Pillsbury. 
famous 19th century biologist. I'm sure you all have his photo framed above your kitchen tables. However, not every town is lucky enough to be connected to wealth and fame and fortune. Marshalltown, Iowa, for example, boasts of, can you guess? In case you thought I was going to say me, well, you're wrong. I do, however, share my place of birth with one Cap Anson, born in 1852. If you are a baseball fan, you might recognize the name of this all-star player, but you will also recognize him for being one of the biggest proponents of racial segregation in professional baseball, which lasted well into the 1940s. He often refused to take the field when the opposing roster included black players, or if forced to play, insisted on using the feet, the feet first slide, employing his spikes to inflict harm on the baseman. Similarly, if you visit the only tavern in my husband's hometown, you will not find his beer either on tap or in a can. No heroes welcome there. So then, what is it with hometowns? It can go either way, really. You are either a hero or a villain. You are either welcome or you're not. When Jesus wanders into his hometown of Nazareth, the townspeople recognize him immediately. Hey, they say, this is Joseph's kid. Maybe they shout, hey, Jesus, remember me? I taught you in school. Or, hey, Jesus, remember how we used to run away and scare our parents? Or the very worst thing a person can hear when they return to their hometown, hey, Jesus, I used to change your diapers. Or in this case, swaddling clothes. Expectations are high. Hopes soar as the crowd waits for Jesus to speak, waiting to hear what kind of man he has become. And when he announces that scripture is fulfilled that very day in their presence, well, he is showered with compliments and praise. They clap him on the back and they say, attaboy, and refrains of, for he's a jolly good fellow, reverberate throughout the Galilean hillside. Had Jesus stopped right there, he could have left Nazareth a hero. The hero that they had hoped and dreamt he would become. He could have ridden off into the sunset and returned home anytime he wanted to be wined and dined as a local celebrity. Jesus, the traveling silver-tongued prophet and orator, son of Joseph and Mary. Maybe they would even post a sign on the highway entering Nazareth. Welcome to Nazareth, home of the fighting donkeys, state champions, and hometown of Jesus, son of Joseph and Mary. But as we know, Jesus does not stop there. And this is where the singing stops. And the grins 
turn into grimaces, and the merry eyes narrow into suspicious, angry slits, and as far as we know, he never again returns to his hometown, never receives his hero's welcome, never feels the warm embrace from those who have known him for so long. No prophet is welcome in their hometown, Jesus begins, fully aware of the controversial message he is about to deliver. Jesus then proceeds to remind his people of all the mighty deeds God has done in all the wrong places on behalf of all the wrong people. A foreign widow is the only one aided by Elijah during a famine. He finds more faith in Zarephath than in his very own Israel. An enemy commander named Naaman is the only leper healed during a time of occupation and war. The lepers and the king in Israel overlooked the healing that they could have had through Elisha. So God instead heals an enemy Syrian. And the people of Nazareth are outraged. This is not what we expected of you, Jesus, they shout. This was not the plan at all. You are celebrating all the wrong people. You are invoking God's power in all the wrong places. How dare you? I remember a sermon preached in my senior year of seminary by Dr. Norma Cook Everest. Her text was Luke 6 where Jesus heals a deformed man on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees are enraged, and they begin to plot his death. At one point in her sermon, Dr. Everest took off her glasses, lowered her eyes, gazed out at all of us naive and optimistic seminarians, and said, you will heal on someone's Sabbath. In fact, that's exactly what you're being called to do. Of course, none of us could know what she meant until we did exactly what she had foretold, and then we remembered her words of wisdom. To heal on someone's Sabbath is to offend some with the radical grace that God has for all. Repeatedly in the book of Luke, Jesus heals and preaches on the Sabbath, offending the teachers and authorities who remind him that this day is holy and sacred and the law prohibits work of any kind from being done. But aren't people? Isn't mercy more important than law, Jesus replies, and they hate him for it. Because this is certainly not the kind of fame they need or desire. This disobedient, insubordinate, disruptive behavior, including those we wish to exclude, forgiving ones we wish to condemn, feeding ones we wish to starve, healing ones we wish to humiliate, loving ones we wish to hate. We must do away with this Jesus who has disappointed us in every possible way. And they rage against Jesus, and he never again returns to his hometown. As far as hometowns go, they like you till they don't. They celebrate you until you speak of love for ones they hate. They praise you until you dare to include the outsider ones who don't look like them, speak like them or worship like them. You are on the inside 
until they decide you are on the outside. But this is merely the first of many offenses that Jesus makes on the Sabbath. I wonder if he ever stops feeling the pain of rejection. Again, when I was a senior in seminary, I was about to give my final sermon in my preaching class. It was to be preached at the high pulpit, high on the wall at Wartburg Seminary. My professor was an arrogant, brilliant man. My friend Reggie had just finished preaching his final sermon. There was silence after his sermon before the professor was to offer feedback, but this time the silence was prolonged, followed by a painfully slow solo clap of the prof, followed by the words, blah, 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 sit down. Next. And I was next. I preached, and when I was finished, I braced for his criticism again. A drawn-out, painful silence. The prof then leaned forward, squinted his eyes, and said, The words you speak are absurd. Just who do you think you are to say these things? And in panic, I said the first thing that came to mind, which was, I am the preacher. Damn right, he said, and well done. Next. While I still despise his pedagogical methods, he was effective. To speak gospel words is a risky business and rarely guarantees popularity, fame, or fortune. It's a big job proclaiming God's love, knowing that you will offend ones who think it is their job to dole grace out to ones whom they favor. Jeremiah fears this, even as a young boy. When God calls him to prophesy to the house of Israel, I cannot, he says, I will not, for I am too young, inadequate, insufficient. Don't expect this from me. Ask someone else. No, says God. I choose you, and I will help you. Don't worry about who you will disappoint or offend. Don't worry about the big picture. I will give you the words. Now, here's our next step. It's not about the big picture. It's not about the grandiose plan. It never is. It's all about the next step the next breath, the next day. Especially as our lives continue to be derailed by pandemic and our hopes and patience and energy wear dangerously thin. Grace is the next word, the next inch, the next musical note. And you are not inadequate. You are not insufficient. You are exactly what is needed to make an extraordinary difference in the world. One breath, one inch, one word at a time. You are the preacher to every person whom you encounter. I was on the phone with the doctor's office <clears throat> excuse me, on Friday, making an appointment for one of the boys. The receptionist kept stumbling over my name and the reason for my call, and she was starting to get 
angry and sound a little belligerent. She stopped and she said, I'm sorry. I seem to be at war with myself today. Well, then I said, you can only win. And she laughed. We chatted about sick kids and lack of sleep. And hopefully she found some victory in her battle against herself. So then we learn today that there is potential price for declaring God's unconditional love for all people. You might not receive a hero's welcome in your hometown. You might lose friends. You might have relatives turn away. But the thing is, Jesus gets that. Today, he models how to handle it. You move on. In fact, things get so bad for Jesus in Nazareth that the people drive him out of the city and push him to the edge of the cliff, and they are ready to throw him over the side. And he passes through the midst of them, and he goes on his way. Sorry, people of Nazareth, but God's grace will not stop because it offends you. And so if you will kindly step out of the way, I have work to do. When you feel pushed to the edge, when you feel crushed, by the weight of other people's expectations of you or your own expectations of yourself when you are terrified of disappointing others. Do as Jesus does. Move on. Go about your way, inch by inch, step by step, breath by breath. Find hope in the one minute of peace, in the one face that does not scowl at you, in the one voice that is kind. Grace is always about the particularities. God's kingdom is about that withered hand made well, this sick child restored to health, that blind man who can now see. It is about you with a name. Grace reveals itself in the specifics. Just to illustrate how under the weather I have been this past week, and I am about to make my second sports reference in one sermon, unprecedented for me. And although Jake begged me not to do this, I nonetheless will, because it speaks to the kind of children I hope to raise. I watched the Bills Chiefs game with Jake last Sunday, which was an epic game, even to these untrained eyes, but it is what Patrick Mahomes did after his team won that caught my eye. The second that the game ended, with teammates and coaches and reporters and fans chasing him down the field, Mahomes sprinted down the field until he found Josh Allen, and he hugged him, and he gave him words of encouragement. The victor found the defeated one who was sad and disappointed, who felt the weight of the world on his shoulders, one who had worked every bit as hard, who felt he had failed other people's expectations of him and his own expectations of himself. The embrace did not erase the sting of defeat, but it underscores what Jesus is modeling. When every opportunity for fame and fortune is chasing you down the field, seek out instead the hurting one the grieving one, the lost one, and offer hope, even if it offends others. 
Worry less about the big picture, the grand plan. These things will unfold in time. The grace of God is encountered in your next step, in your next breath, in your next bold word. Consider briefly the risk in proclaiming the radical love of God that there are no insiders or outsiders. And if you find yourself offending some people, know that you are doing something right. Amen.